Glad you guys could make it out this morning. Hey, let's pray before we get going into the teaching this morning. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for you people that you brought out, Lord. And what a just a joyous time to come together to worship, to celebrate, to fellowship, just to see the next generation of believers being raised up. We thank you for that. As always, Lord, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct, and help us just to learn and grow of you. In your name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Continuing our study here through the book of Matthew. Lord willing, time willing, we're doing verses 18 through the end of the chapter, so 18 through 38. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks as we've been going through Matthew, we've been talking about these two words, the proof and the power of the Messiah. So all these miracles that we've seen in the last couple chapters, just the healings there, the power over disease, the power over sickness, power over nature, the power over the spiritual realm, those all show the power of Jesus, and it also shows the proof that he is the Messiah, because only the Messiah could do that. With that being said, it builds up to this point here today. So we see the proof of the Messiah. We see the power of the Messiah over sin and over everything. What do we do with this information? Well, what you see here in Matthew chapter 9 is you see that you're supposed to have that same heart that Christ has to the world that is around you. So we're actually going to work backwards this morning. Instead of starting in verse 18, I want to go to verse 35. That's our main point, And then we're going to backtrack to see how this applies. So Matthew 9, verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Key word there is compassion. He had compassion for them. This is a really interesting word in the original Greek. There is not a stronger word in the Greek language to show having care and concern for people. Compassion is just not seeing somebody and saying, okay, I'll give you a few bucks to help you out. Compassion is not just saying, you know, I'm just going to make a quick donation. Compassion is saying, I am so moved by that situation. I am so hurt by that situation that I want to get in there and help them. Romans chapter 12 talks about that, that idea of you weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. That if they're hurting, you're hurting. If they're rejoicing, you're rejoicing. You have such a compassion for them. Jesus represented this at the death of Lazarus. When Jesus went to Lazarus' funeral, that simple little verse of Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Because he was moved with compassion for the hurting that everybody else had. Christ knew what was going to happen. He knew that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. But the point was, he was so moved by what everybody else was going through, he had compassion for them. So this word means to be moved from the inside, your inward being. It just really hurts you. It really hits you, what's going on with these people. So the first point is, do we have that compassion? And why do we need to have compassion for them? Because look right here in verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That word weary is translated differently in nearly every major translation. Some of your translations say weary. Some say fainted. Some say confused. Some say helpless. Okay, that's the world we live in. You work with people. You live with people. You have friends, family, and relatives that are weary, fainted, confused, and helpless. And you have the answer in Christ. So therefore you are moved with compassion to go to them and to minister to them and to love them. Now what do we normally do when we see somebody weary, fainted, confused, and helpless? A lot of times we try to go the opposite way. If you pull into Walmart and you see a guy standing there with a sign and you're getting ready to leave, what do you do? You go out the other exit. A lot of times we don't want to deal with that type of stuff. And so we try to do everything we can to not feel uncomfortable, to not weep with those who weep. 
And really what you see here, Christ setting an example in Matthew chapter 9 is, hey, when you see the weary, the fainted, the confused, the helpless, be moved from your inward being to have compassion for them because that's exactly what Christ is. So how do we do this? Well, the answer is found there in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's one of the verses that we've always used out here as harvest fellowship is to say, Lord, we want to send people out into the harvest to be a light and a witness in all that we do and all that we say. So there are lots of people that need ministering to. The harvest is plentiful. Problem is, there's never a lot of workers. But that's okay. God has never used a lot of people. When Jesus wanted to change the world, what did he do? He grabbed 12 guys and one of them betrayed him. When God wanted to take on the Philistine army, what did he do? He just used Jonathan and his armor bearer. He used a shepherd boy by the name of David to take on Goliath. God doesn't need a lot of people, but he needs people that have a heart and that are willing to have compassion for the lost. That's why we keep pushing this point. Because without that point, the rest of this message means absolutely nothing. You can go do good for people. And good will come out of that, because God is good. But God really wants your heart to be moved like his heart is when we see those people. Think about this throughout the Bible. God has used nature to do things. He has used animals to do things. He has used angels to do things. But he chooses and wants to use us to reach others. What an amazing thing that is. It's to be spirit-led, to have the heart of Christ, to say, my heart hurts for them and I want to love them like Christ does. This is something we've been building to over the last couple of years. You know, in 2014, one of the words we really focused on was that idea of being a disciple. A disciple, that encouraging you to be disciple, but also encouraging you to disciple others. Disciple just means a follower of a teacher. So we follow the teachings of Jesus. And so therefore, I want to disciple others. And I want to be discipled to go deeper in my walk with Christ. That's what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28. Then we build on that. Last year, we started talking about this idea of knowing, growing, and then going, being sent out. Knowing who God is, growing in your walk with Christ, but then go do something about it. Let's just not sit, but let's go when the Lord leads us to go. And then this year, we've been talking a lot about Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not about seeking us. It's not about this church. It's not about these four walls. It's about representing Jesus Christ to a dying world. So seeking him. This beautifully comes together to what Jesus is saying right here, right now. Is do you have compassion for people? Does your heart break for the weary, the fainted, the confused, the helpless? Does your heart hurt like Christ's heart hurt? And then are we willing to go to minister to them? So, who are we supposed to go minister to? What are these, these weary, fainted, confused, helpless people look like? Well, Jesus has four examples here this morning. First one, verse 18. Now that we know the goal to have compassion like Christ... What do we do with it? Verse 18. When he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl's not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. When the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went out to all the land. First group that you want to have compassion on is those that are mourning, those that are sorrowful. Years ago at a pastor's conference, the pastor said, if given an opportunity to do a funeral, he says, do it. 
Because at that time, you have people in a room, and they're not going to leave, and they're going to listen. And a lot of times, people that come to funerals may not be the most church people. You have an opportunity to really minister and talk to people who normally would not sit under a message. And what an opportunity that is. I've done lots of funerals over the years and lots of interesting funerals that they were. And you see a lot of hurting people responding to hurt and sorrow in different ways. If you don't have the Lord, boy, how difficult is sorrow and mourning when there's no hope? That's what's so amazing about being a Christian. Thessalonians tell us we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have hope, and that hope is found in Christ. But when you're ministering to a family that does not have the hope of Christ, they're hurting. I remember years ago I did a funeral, and it was for a gal that kind of popped out here sporadically. You know, kind of popped in a little bit, popped out. She died very unexpectedly. Family obviously was just crushed. So they approached me and said, would you be willing to do the funeral? So I said, sure. Family didn't really want to get together and talk about things. It was just one of those, show up, do the funeral. That's all they want. Just show up, say a few words, do the funeral. So I show up at the funeral home to do the funeral, and I go into the casket to pay my respects. And the casket is just completely full of beer. Just completely full of beer. They're burying her just completely full of beer. I'm not trying to make a judgment call on beer or alcohol. I don't take this message the wrong way. So therefore, as I'm getting ready to start the funeral, I get behind the podium. And I start out by saying, you know, I'd like to thank you for coming today to the memorial service of. And as soon as I start saying that, everybody pulls a beer out from under their seats, cracks it open, and they drink for the entire service. Now, what was going on? That's the only way they know to drown their sorrows. That's the only way they know to have some type of comfort in the middle of pain. That's what they were doing. Now, they talked about how it was a memorial for her, and they were doing this in memory of her, and and that's beside the point. The point is they were hurting. They had no hope. They had no joy at that moment, and this is what they turned to. You work with people. You live with people. You know people that are weary, fainted, confused, helpless. They have no hope. They have no joy. They're looking for something. That something is found in the Lord. And that's why we're supposed to have the heart of the compassion of Christ is to point people towards Jesus. Because he's the only answer that we have. Stay in the Gospels here, but just go to John, please. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a passage I probably use at almost every funeral I do because it's one of the best passages to show. How do we handle death? How do we handle those that are mourning, those that are sorrowful, those that are hurting? Let's look at what Jesus did at a funeral. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus at the funeral of Lazarus. Verse 17 of John 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Mary and Martha were the sisters of Lazarus. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's the verse. That's the verse. We're at a funeral. We're sitting at a funeral. They they see their loved one up there in the casket. They're mourning. They're sorrowful. Where is hope in the midst of death? Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then you add verse 26. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, when I'm doing a funeral, I'll usually stop at verse 26 after reading, do you believe this? And I'll say, Jesus just asked a very poignant question right there. 
is, do you believe this? What's Martha's response? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. It's an opportunity for those that are mourning and sorrowful to give them hope. There is a resurrection. There is life. And that is found in Christ and Christ alone. So who do we need to have compassion on? The mourning, the sorrowful. And we point them towards Jesus, the only comfort that can be given during that time. Well, what about the other lady here? In the midst of this story, there's this fascinating story about this woman coming and touching the hem of Jesus' garment. I absolutely love this story. It's repeated again in Luke 8. It's repeated again in Mark 5. And each time, it gives just a little bit more detail. What do we know about this woman? She had this issue of blood for 12 years. 12 years. We know from Luke 8 that she spent all of her money trying to get this taken care of. And she was out of money because she had used all of her money trying to find a medical answer. We know from Mark 5 that she suffered greatly, the Bible says. In fact, that when she went to the doctors, it kept getting worse. So here she is hurting. Twelve years, spent all of her money, and she's suffering and growing worse again and again. Do you not know somebody who's hurting physically like that? They just keep going to the doctor looking for answer. There is no answer. The bank account is getting lower and lower and lower. The medical bills are getting higher. What do they need? Only thing they need to do, verse 21, is just get him to Jesus. If I only may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Christ gives hope and comfort during that time. And she just needed to touch the hem of his garment. That doesn't mean touch his, his coat. It doesn't mean just touch his garments. It doesn't mean just touch Jesus. What she literally is saying is this. According to Numbers 15, if you were a good Jewish boy, you had your clothes that you wore, but at the bottom you had four blue tassels. Four blue tassels at the bottom. That's the hem of your garment. And they were colored blue, so that way when you see them, it was reminding you to think of God's word. So a Jewish man would wear these four tassels on the bottom of his garment. What she's saying is, I just need to touch the garment. Just, I just need to touch one tassel. That's all I need to do. I don't need to shake hands with him. I don't need him to have him lay hands on me. I just need to touch the most bottom part of the garment, and I will be made well. She was so desperate to get in there just to get to Jesus. Just to get to Jesus. Now, this is a bigger deal than what that shows, though. Because of this issue of blood, according to Leviticus 15... Everything she does, everything she touches, is completely unclean. Everything. Any bedding she has at home is unclean. Any house she goes into is unclean. Her husband would be unclean. So this woman for 12 years would not have been able to be around houses, kids, her husband, because he'd be considered unclean. In fact, Leviticus says that she would have to live outside of the camp. So she probably would have to live outside of Jerusalem because she couldn't be near anybody. She's been completely ostracized from society because of this issue of blood, almost like a leper. So any loved one, she could not be near, and if they came near her, they would be considered unclean. No relationships, no nothing. So by her coming into the midst of this crowd and saying, I just want to touch Jesus, what is she actually doing? She's breaking all the rules. She's completely breaking the rules. Because by her coming in the crowd, anybody she touches, they become what? Unclean. But this is where it gets great, guys. She's unclean, she goes and touches Jesus, but what happens? She becomes clean. See, that's what the Lord does. The Lord takes us who are unclean and makes us clean. Instead of the uncleanliness of her impacting Jesus and making him unclean, 
When we go to Christ as being unclean and sinful, and we go to the Lord and say, Jesus, just touch me, what does he do? He cleanses us. That's what's beautiful about this. The unclean becomes clean. And so therefore, we are that woman. We are unclean. We are suffering. We're growing worse. The only thing we need to do is touch Jesus. And when we touch Jesus, all of a sudden we have a relationship with them. Because take a look at this. Verse 20, suddenly a woman. She's called a woman in verse 20. Check out verse 22. Be of good cheer, daughter. She goes from being a nameless woman to a daughter of God. We are unclean. We just need to touch Jesus. We're made clean. The suffering, we're growing worse. We need to touch Jesus. Then we have a relationship with Him. What a beautiful picture that is. Those are the people we need to have compassion on. Those people that are suffering. Those people that are going through difficult times. And what do we need to do? Introduce them to Christ. And Christ will take the unclean and make them clean. Now, just remember though, she broke all the rules. She broke all of them. Dawn and I were talking this week, and I called her a Pharisee. It doesn't sound as bad as it sounds, so just hear me out. We were talking in the Bible about all the times people are breaking the rules. Woman caught in adultery. She should have been stoned. That's the rule. David should have been stoned back in the Old Testament. This woman right here is breaking all the rules. And it's interesting. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I just start to realize grace. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's just grace, God's love, God's forgiveness. And I was telling Dawn, the longer she walks with the Lord, the more legalistic I think she becomes. So maybe that's our way of balancing each other out. I don't know. But the longer I walk, the more it's just grace. This woman is breaking the rules and Jesus says, you're clean. I just love it. We just need to go to Christ, touch the hem of the garment, and we're the unclean become clean. What a beautiful picture that is. But let's not forget about what's going on in the rest of the story here. The, the young girl is still dead. So he shows up in verse 23, and there's all the flute players and the noisy crowd. Now, you have to know a little bit about Jewish history here. The way you would do a funeral is Jews did not embalm the dead, so therefore they usually were buried right away. So since there was not time to invite aunts, uncles, and cousins to the funeral, what you would do is you would hire professional mourners. So somebody would pass away, and all these mourners would show up, and they would do the big crowd, the big music, the big wailing, to show this person was loved. So when you see this crowd doing this, they're probably not friends, they're probably not family, they're probably professional mourners. So they show up. Jesus says, hey, make room. The girl's not dead but sleeping. That's why in verse 24, how quickly they turn and they start ridiculing him. They have no emotional investment in this girl. So now they're mocking him. Oh, she's sleeping. Just a real quick point here. Real quick point. Never look to the world for joy, peace, comfort, love. They will turn on you so quick. Jesus is the one that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The world will go from mourning and weeping the girl to ridiculing Jesus just like that. That's what the world does. They will turn so quickly. The only constant that we have in our life is the relationship with Christ. That is the only constant we have. Jesus goes in. She is miraculously healed. Verse 26, the report goes across the land. So who do we need to have compassion on? The mourning, the sorrowful, those that are hurting. What's our next group? Verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. We had come into the house. The blind men came to him. And Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. So two blind men now. 
What's the spiritual picture here? The spiritual picture is very simple. We're, we're all blind. We're all spiritual. And this is an ongoing theme in the Bible. Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, 2 Peter, 1 John, all continue this point that we are all blind until we really come to know who Christ is. In fact, when Jesus called Paul... One of the things he called Paul to do, and this is his little mission statement to Paul. This is out of Acts 26. He tells Paul to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. First thing he tells Paul is they need their eyes opened. When they they have their eyes opened, they can finally see. For you that can remember... Before you got saved and after you got saved. Just, just think about how mentally your mindset changed. Before you got saved, you were blinded by so many things. Isaiah says that we used to call what was wrong right and what was right wrong. You know, we live in a society today. We were just talking about this yesterday at one of the men's studies we do out here. We live in this society where they think we're the blinded ones. They think we, we can't see the changes that need to happen. But really, as a spiritual believers, when we see what's going on in this world... They're blinded. They're blind. They don't get it. They don't get morally what's going on. They don't see what's happening. And until their eyes are opened in Christ, they're not going to see. And their eyes need to be made open. So as their eyes are made open, then they can finally see. Okay, well, what happens if they don't want their eyes open? Well, you know, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into our heart. And I firmly believe that there's a part of everybody that at one time or another is seeking the Lord. They may not fully realize it. They may not fully understand it. But there's a part of them that says, I want something to be different. Did you notice in verse 27, the blind men are following him crying out. How does a blind person follow? You know how much work that would take? Following, crying out, looking for something? I see that in the world all the time. They're putting so much effort into finding an answer. Just a few weeks ago, I got a phone call from somebody. A guy that I have not probably spoken to in about six years called out of the blue. Pastor, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you today. Things are falling apart. I said, sure. It was a Wednesday night. I said, I'll be out there for church. I said, what time do you want to come out? I said, do you want to come out? Like 5.30, 6 o'clock. They said, sure. They said, I'll see you there. I really need to talk to you. Never showed up. But at that moment, they, they, they needed it. They needed something. They realized something was not right in their life. And their eyes were open for an instant saying, the Lord can help. But then the eyes closed again. Maybe you've had conversations with people at work like that, where one day it's like, man, they're getting close. Their eyes are opening. Next day, they just don't care. And that's what happens in this world. It's kind of like they see for a little bit and blinded, see for a little bit and blinded. What really has to happen is their eyes have to be open to fully know who Christ is. So when they come, they want to be made well. Jesus says, do you believe that I can do this? He says, according to your faith, let it be to you. Verse 29, according to your faith, because of your faith, as the New Living Translation says, because of your faith. And then what does he say? Verse 30. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. Jesus obviously needs to go to an evangelism class. Because he's not getting the concept of spreading your faith, right? He's not getting it. Can you imagine coming here on a Sunday morning, and I tell you guys, Hey, this week, do your best to tell nobody about Jesus. Just try not to. Why is he doing this? Don't tell anybody. Well, we can tell by looking in John 6, the crowds are getting so big that by force they wanted to make Jesus king. And so what you see here in verse 26, the report of this went out into the land. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm here not to be made king. I'm here to represent God, to be the Messiah, to die on the cross. That's my goal. It's not to be the king. And so therefore, when he says, tell no one about it, he doesn't need the crowds in an uproar. 
Real quick, Jesus is never concerned about numbers. Never concerned about numbers. If you're involved in any type of ministry, if you're involved in any type of church thing, I just want to encourage you, never focus on the numbers. It's never about numbers. It's about representing Jesus Christ to a dying world. That is all that matters. That is all that matters. And that's what Jesus did. He represented the Messiah, him, to these blind men. And he did his job. So, first group, sorrowful, hurting. Next group, the people that are spiritually blind. Who's our last group that we need to have compassion for? Verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Who do we need to have compassion on? Those that are spiritually oppressed. I tell you, it's out there, people. There's a group of people out there, and they are spiritually oppressed. It's a difficult, dark time for them. And they need the set, being set free from the Lord. And what you see is Jesus coming out here. He's casting out the demon. And the man can speak. Now, this doesn't really seem like that big a deal. It doesn't seem a little anticlimactic. You know, we build up to this point, And their response is this, verse 33. It was never seen like this in Israel. I mean, I think there's other times where Jesus cast out demons where it was much more, much more exciting. You know, he was talking to the one just a couple weeks ago. My name is Legion. And they threw him all in the swine. And all the swine went off the cliff. Right? So what's so amazing and impressive about this? We don't even hear how he does it. It just, the man couldn't speak. He's demon-possessed. The demon's cast out. And all of a sudden, in verse 33, everybody says, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in Israel. You have to know a little bit about what the Jews thought at this time. Now, this is what the Jews taught. It was not biblical, but this is what they taught. The Jews at this time believed that the way you'd get a demon out of somebody is by tricking the demon into saying their name. And once they would say their name, then you could do things to get the demon out of the person. So the most powerful demons, according to the Jews at this time, would be the demons that would make the man mute. So therefore, he couldn't speak. That was the most powerful demon. You would never be able to get that demon out because you could never have the man speak to say the demon's name, to pull the demon out. So when Jesus goes up and says, hey, I'm casting this demon out of a mute man, the Jews would say, that's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. It's that powerful. Now, from us, unless you know that, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. You know, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, Layden, our second youngest, uh, it was getting ready to be lunchtime. Dawn wasn't home. He came over and said, what can I have for lunch? I said, why don't you just have ice cream? It's simple. It's easy. You'll like it. Everything's happy and fine. So he had a bowl of ice cream for lunch. He came, Dad, this is the best day ever. <laughs> Amen. Don't tell your mom. You know, it was one of those... It was one of those things where his little world, it was the best day ever. Because he saw the big picture. He got ice cream for lunch. Well, if we don't know the background for this, we can't understand why they're so excited. They're excited because this is an unbelievable miracle. That the mute is now demon being cast out. It's unbelievable. And you can tell it was that big a deal because look at verse 34. The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees are saying, wait a second, this is not possible. Not possible. The mute man had the demon cast out. Not possible. The only way you could do that is if you were a demonic power yourself. So now you start to see the big picture. So let's put this all together. What do we have here? What we have is this. Jesus wants us to have compassion like him. Compassion like him. That's why we started out with that. Because this lesson means absolutely nothing unless you have the heart of Christ. I remember when I first got saved, one of the first books I ever read was On Fire by Greg Glory. 
And one of the points that he mentioned when it comes to sharing your faith is he says, if you truly want to share your faith, you've got to have a heart like Christ. You've got to care. You've got to hurt when they hurt. You've got to love like he loves. And what a great point. Because we could go out and just share our faith. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. And God will use that because God is good and his word doesn't return void. But if you really want to make an impact, have a heart like Christ. When you see these people, when you see these people that are confused and weary and fainted and helpless, Lord, I want to hurt like you hurt for them. When I see those that are mourning, that are hurting, that are blind, that are oppressed, Lord, I want to hurt like you hurt for them. Do we have compassion like Jesus? Next thing we do, pray that people are sent out. Verse 38, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Pray that people are sent out. What does that look like? Do you know what that looks like? That looks like tonight. Maybe you can't make it tonight to the creation speaker. Hey, at 6.30, could you pray for those that came? Maybe you don't, aren't able to make it Wednesday nights. Could you pray for us that are out here on Wednesday? You know, next Saturday, we, yesterday they uh, did a work project. And so they're finishing up next Saturday. Quick plug, 8 a.m. to go over and finish up the roof. Maybe you can't make it. Could you at 8 a.m. next Saturday pray for those that could? You know, there's a Bible study that meets in Deschler on Monday afternoons. That group of ladies, maybe tomorrow you stop and you pray for them. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I know those ladies on Deschler, that study tomorrow, guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be praying for you. So maybe you're not the one going, but you could stop and say, wow, I look at this bulletin, I see what's going on, I see the studies. Maybe I'm not a woman that goes to the Friday morning study at 9, but Friday at 9 I'll take a moment and pray for them. Pray that they would be sent out to go deeper in their walk in relationship with the Lord. What a beautiful picture that is. Maybe you hear the Lord is moving, I don't know, in Mexico or in Africa. Lord, I pray that people are sent out to go, to minister, to be a light and a witness. Okay? Have compassion like Jesus. Pray for people to be sent out. Next one. How about you be willing to go when the Lord calls you? When the Lord says, okay, you're praying for people to be sent out? Well, I'm sending you. Can we be willing to go when the Lord says, go? That is not as easy as it sounds. It's actually very difficult sometimes. This last Thursday, I was over in Defiance, and I had to get home before 4 to get Brooke and Shane off the bus. So I was in Defiance getting groceries, and Dawn and, some, and the rest of the kids were out here having some fellowship time. So 2.53, I get in line at Walmart. Check out with all the groceries. There's a lot of groceries. So it's taking a long time. I'm looking at the clock. I got to go. I got to get the car loaded up. I got to pick up the rest of the kids. I got to get home before 4 o'clock. Time. Okay? So as I'm checking out, there's a Casting Crown CD at Walmart. I thought that was pretty neat. So I bought that for Dawn. I thought she would like that. So as we are checking out, so the Casting Crown CD comes across uh, there in front of the cashier. The cashier says, oh, that's a good CD. Now, what am I supposed to do at that moment? Now, I've done the evangelism training class. That's a God door right there. God just opened a door. There's people standing all around. Talk to her about it. I don't got time. Come on, lady. Your job is to scan it, bag it, and we go. That's what you do. So I'm standing. I got to go. And I thought, it's like, I mean, the Lord just says that at that moment, you need to say something. Fine. Yeah, it's a good CD. <laughs> That's what I say. And she's like, yeah, we sing some of those songs at church. <sighs> Where do you go to church? You know? 
all of a sudden it turns into this conversation that she went on an admissions trip to Jamaica and she really has a heart for her husband want to go deeper in the Lord and I wish he would go deeper in the Lord and we're talking about being one flesh in the Lord and you know the marriage how difficult it can be but you're really being a light and witness and I hope he goes on the mission trip and it's just this long conversation and I thought okay Lord you know where I got to go you know what I got to do you know the time I got to be back but you've opened up a door here am I willing Am I willing to go and just encourage and pray and talk? I don't know what the people around us heard. I know the conversation that her and I had. I didn't get home in time to get the kids off the bus. But God in his infinite timing and plan, he knew that. Am I willing at that moment when it's inconvenient and it's not really what I was expecting to do? Am I willing? See, I want to have a heart like Jesus. I pray that people are sent out. But then am I willing to also be one that's willing to go? That's what we have to stop and ask ourselves. And when I go, am I willing to minister to those that are mourning and sorrowful, those that are hurting, those that are blind, those that are oppressed? Am I willing to go minister to those? Or am I going to find the nearest exit so I don't have to? So if I'm willing to do all this, here's the last thing. Am I ready for the pushback that's going to happen? See, take a look at verse 24 one more time. They ridiculed him. Verse 34 one more time. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. It would be wonderful to go into work tonight or tomorrow for you to proclaim Christ. Then your whole shift in line hits their knees and accepts Jesus. The truth is, when you take a stand for the Lord, there's going to be pushback. There is. I don't know why this still shocks us and surprises us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. We have to be prepared and ready that when we decide to say, Lord, I want to have a heart like yours... And I want to be compassionate like you. I'm praying for people to be sent out. I'm praying to be willing to go. I'm going to minister to the mourning, the sorrowful, the hurting, the blind, the oppressed. I also have to be ready for the pushback that comes with that. I'm just going to tell you, in my experience, the pushback I've seen usually comes from the people and places I least expect it. And sometimes that's what hurts the most. If you want to go out there and be a light and a witness and a difference maker wherever you're at, be prepared for all this. Lord, give me a heart like Christ. Give me a compassion like Christ. And the neat segue to what we're going to get into next week. So when Jesus says in verse 38, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Right into chapter 10. Who's the laborers that are sent out? The 12. God says, I want to use the body of Christ to get out there and minister to people. To really represent me to this dying world. Worship team, if you can come forward here for the final song.